Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the uh, book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. If you guys don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get one to you. Uh, real fast, we've been going through a little series uh, on the person and the gifts or the work of the Holy Spirit. What we've been really trying to understand is a little bit about who the Holy Spirit is and really why it's so important and significant to us, but then really to have a better understanding as to how the Holy Spirit works. Like, what are some of the actual ways by which um, God, through the Holy Spirit, actually works? And the reason we've been saying why we've been going through this whole series is because, by and large, most of us, if you're a Christian here, or even just someone, if you're not a Christian, uh, we have, by way of somewhat understanding who God the Father is, we know who God the Son is, Jesus, the idea of who the Holy Spirit is is one of those little bit more ambiguous types of ways to define who the Holy Spirit is. Because uh, God the Father, we understand fatherhood. God the Son, we understand sonship to some degree. But the idea of spirit is one of those things within our culture. By and large, we don't really have a lot of understanding as well. As you add to that, sort of the complexity within churches, sometimes you'll have churches that run the gamut, some that have a lot of emphasis upon the Holy Spirit, that creeps you out, freaks you out, as probably it should, to the other extreme where there is sort of an, uh, an avoidance of anything having to do with a person in the work of the Holy Spirit. So what we're really trying to do is to bridge a gap, to do what we can as best as we can by God's grace to help inform you guys uh, to who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit works, really so that we could better know God. It's really at the end of the day what it's all about. By understanding who the Holy Spirit is, the Holy Spirit leads us, shows us who Jesus is. Jesus reveals to us who the Father is. The aim is not just simply to tuck away a little bit more ammunition into our theological guns so that we can get into better arguments, but the idea so that we would love God, love others, and really live on and for the mission that God calls us to be a part of. So really, it's an issue of discipleship. We want to be better disciples of God. And we want to know all that God reveals to us about himself. Even though there may be occasions within church context, it may be abused, it might be kind of messed up, and it might cause us to either want to steer away from it or go completely headlong into it in a way that might not be actual biblical. So with that, we are spending some time understanding and packing a little bit about who the Holy Spirit is. So with that, I want to begin this morning by really taking a look at specifically the subject of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We've been looking at various topics throughout this entire series. We've looked at the Holy Spirit and Jesus, the Holy Spirit and God the Father, the Holy Spirit, like a couple weeks ago, we looked at the Holy Spirit and consecration or sanctification, it's a big word, but it's a word that it's actually used within the scripture to define. Last week, Nick, uh, who is our high school pastor, uh, started uh, looking at uh, the subject of the Holy Spirit and the gifts primarily looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, we're going to continue on in that vein. Uh, actually, for the next couple of weeks, there's a lot there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is sort of the largest corpus of writing on the actual acts of the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament. So we want to not just simply run through it as fast as we could to get done with it, but to really take some time to really ask big questions to really try to investigate it, to really understand it, so that we can kind of swallow it and sort of bring it into our lives so that we can be changed by it. Um, the aim of Christian discipleship is not just simply to amass information. It's to be shaped into the image of Jesus. We want to be like Christ because worshipers, worshipers of Christ, we want to look like 
Christ. We want to act like Christ. And the way that God does that is through the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll read kind of a larger passage, verses 1 through 14. So again, if you guys don't have Bibles, raise your hand. We have some people that get them for you. You can open up there. If you guys don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep it. We'll also have it up on the screen. So let me read. We'll jump in by taking a look at verse 1. We'll go all the way down about verse 14 or so, somewhere in there. It says this, now concerning Spiritual gifts, brothers or sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute or dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit. So get used to that. That's been happening all morning long. First service was happening a lot. It was awesome. It was raining a lot. It was awesome. So um, I was told that I kept saying first service, like, wow, that was awesome, or listen, that rain. It's kind of hard to edit all that stuff out of sermons. We'll just, like, leave it in there. So if I end up saying that, just ignore it. So anyways, verse 4 goes on to say, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. To one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom. And he's going to list nine various types of gifts that he describes, and to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit, and to another, faith By the same spirit to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit to another, working of miracles to another, prophecy to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits to another, various kinds of tongues to another, interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and as many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Elsewhere, Paul adds to this list, male or female. He says, all were made to drink of one spirit. So if you caught anything throughout this entire 14 passages, the 13 passages, is the emphasis and the reiteration of the word one or same. It's a theme that Paul is emphasizing. I'll tell you why in a second. Verse 14, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So, what we've been taking a look at and what we will take a look at this morning are really the idea of what these gifts of the Holy Spirit are all about. And the ironic thing that Paul starts off here is he starts this little passage of this little section, verse 1, by saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. And the irony is this, is that here we are, you know, 1900 some odd years later, and that's exactly what we are. We're totally uninformed. We're uninformed about who God is, the nature and the character of who the Holy Spirit is. We're uninformed in a lot of ways as to what the Holy Spirit does. So there's a little bit of an irony there that what Paul is doing here in this passage, or in this really throughout the entire letter of Corinthians, is that most scholars would admit or recognize that the letter, the tenor, the theme of 1 Corinthians is actually uh, corrective. Paul's writing to a group of believers in this city called Corinth, and it seems as if he's writing in response to a letter. So Paul probably received a letter or a series of letters from Christians that were living in this city of Corinth, and they were griping and complaining and 
telling Paul all sorts of horrible things that were going on and asking questions as to what type of conduct they should be having and telling Paul stories about stuff that's going on or events or situations that are happening. And so Paul basically perhaps synthesizes all of these letters uh, from the church there, Corinth, and then writes back in what we now know as the letter of 1 Corinthians. And one of the things that Paul recognizes, first and foremost, is this ongoing theme of uh, disunity within the church. So that plays into the very core as to what Paul is trying to first and foremost address in the issue of the gifts of the Spirit. So which is kind of ironic because, again, here we are, like I said, 2,000 years later, and the subject of gifts of the Holy Spirit become one of the most divisive teachings in the church amongst Christians. Christians cannot agree on this type of stuff. And some disagree uh, in a very type of uh, angry type of a manner. And this is really what Paul is writing to not do. Uh, This is one of the reasons why Paul starts out. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And so my hope is to to some degree at least remove some of the mystery around this, the notion of the teaching, the ideas, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and to really, hopefully, if anything, introduce to you the, the aim, the thrust, why, the goodness, I should say, of these gifts of the Holy Spirit, and really kind of lay the groundwork for the next week or two weeks to come to really begin to absorb and understand how these things begin to play out and work within the church for the main purpose of building each other up. So again, the idea behind these gifts is not to divide the way it oftentimes happens, but really to build up, to bring together, to tie up, to cinch up, to draw near, to kind of close the gaps that oftentimes are brought about within the church. So a couple things I want to begin to deal with first and foremost are some misconceptions, I would say, about spiritual gifts. So I got to say a little bit of this, and if you wouldn't allow me, or if you allow me for just a few minutes, I need to get a little bit technical to deal with a couple things throughout uh, the first parts here in, in terms of dealing with some of these misconceptions. Because whether you know it or not, a lot of us, we bring baggage when we come to the Bible. All of us do. Um, no matter who you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long you've been studying the Bible, no matter what type of a student you are, we all bring various forms of baggage. And it could be because of background or past experiences that we've had that have been bad, or just simply we have kind of a, 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 a tendency to kind of bring our own um, false notions to the text. So I want to try to address at least three misconceptions about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, these are not necessarily the first one, I would say, is kind of a a biggie, uh, but the other two are are kind of quasi-misconceptions, meaning they're not entirely wrong, they're not entirely right. So first of all, uh, one misconception is that spiritual gifts are really for an elite class of Christians. So some of us, we say things like this, well, I'm not really a really strong Christian, I don't really love Jesus as much as others do, and Gifts, spiritual gifts to bring about blessing, encouragement for the body of Christ, for other Christians. That's really for super Christians. That's really for like those that really love God, really committed to God. It's kind of like a special class, elite force of X-Men type Christians. They've got the gifts. They do the stuff. And me, I'm just barely treading water to try to stay awake, to try to stay alive. So in other words, we kind of reserve special elite force Christians for those who have the gifts of the Spirit, the rest of us, we're just barely trying to survive. So that's one of the misconceptions. Because in reality, it flies in the face of what Paul is saying. That all are given spiritual gifts. All have something to contribute to God. If you are willing to be this vessel that God is calling you to be, you have something to contribute to the body of Christ. For the, it's building up, for its strength, for its energizing. 
Second misconception is that every Christian receives one, or more if you're lucky, spiritual gift at conversion or when baptized by the Spirit. So again, this is a little bit of uh, sort of uh, not entirely wrong, not entirely right, but the idea is that uh, the moment you become a Christian, you like, somehow are given this gift into your toolbox for you to use anytime you want, however you want, when you want. It's sort of kind of a false idea. Yes, God gives gifts, and he might give you more than one gift, but the reality is, it's not for you to just go out and use anytime you want. So, for example, uh, one of the gifts that we'll read, or we did read, is the gift of healing. Those that have been given this gift, you don't just go out, and it's a, it's a false idea to kind of think, like, I'm going to go out and just start healing people. That's not how it works. God does, you, don't, you don't have this thing to just go out and do it anytime you want, when you want. It's when God gives it for his own purposes at his own right times. So in other words, you can't go around and be like, I have the gift of healing all the time because nobody really truly does. These are some of the more miraculous types of gifts that God gives. And so the idea that I think we've got to address is that, yes, if you're a follower of Jesus, God does give graces or gifts, and we'll more on that in just a second, um, but it's not necessarily for you to simply use at any time, when you want, how you want, on call, if you would. The third misconception is that each Christian is individually responsible to figure out what gift they have. So again, uh, I think the, the thing I'm trying to address here in terms of misconception is this idea that it's incumbent upon you entirely to figure out what these gifts are by yourself as an individual. And I think the misnomer with regard to this or the false idea behind this is it creates sort of a, the impetus is on you. It's, it's about you and your own individual experience. When in reality, the idea of the gifts of the Spirit are for the church, for the body. In other words, they're to be used and discovered and worked forth within the context of a community. More on that in a second. But the idea is that God has given us gifts to be discovered, to be found out within the context of community of the church or even sometimes in evangelistic type scenarios like we see with Jesus. Jesus healing people out in public. Um, it's not always with the community of people, but it's kind of a, as a segue to bring about a community of people. But the idea is that the Holy Spirit gives these gifts for the purpose of bringing encouragement and blessing to others. So let's jump into another thing that I just kind of want to talk about and think about is really what could we or should we call this then? Because I didn't mention this when I first read through this, but the phrase spiritual gifts is not a really great translation. I'll tell you why in a second. Um, in fact, the word spiritual and gifts never come side by side throughout this entire passage. Um, the word that's actually used, there's a little bit uh, a challenging word to uh, interpret within to our language. And so this is where the problem lies. And so most of our translations might say, I don't want you to be uh, unaware of or ignorant of spiritual gifts. But and we, like I said, we tend to think of spiritual gifts as like little tools that we have in our toolbox that we can use any single time we want. Again, these are sort of misconceptions that don't uh, come really close to addressing what's happening here. So what should we call these things then? So let's take a look at five different passages in the section that we looked at. Again, some of this is just part of that technical stuff that I talked about for so uh, a few more minutes and we'll get through this. So the next slide. Take a look at some of the five ways. The first one, chapter 12, verse 1, uh, he talks about now, concerning spirituals or spiritual gifts, it's the Greek word pneumatikoi. Uh, and again, some of your translations might say spiritual gifts. If you have an old translation, it actually might say now concerning spirituals. But the idea of now concerning spirituals kind of leaves a little bit of a, or I should say a lot of ambiguity in our mind. We're like, what does that mean, spirituals? What is he talking about? And again, this is kind of turns into a little bit of the challenge for the word that Paul is addressing here. 
Um, the word pneumatikoi basically has a reference to the word pneuma, which is the word that we use for spirit. So the idea is that whatever this is, it comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work within whatever this is that we're going to talk about or describe or call. Um, the second word that he also uses in verse 4, and he uses the word now concerning or talking about spiritual gifts. He says, now there are varieties of gifts. So uh, whatever these gifts are, the, there's a variety. But the word that's used for gift is the word charismata. Um, it comes from a root word, charis, which is the uh, Greek word for uh, grace. We translate that as grace. So when Paul opens up a letter and he says, grace and peace to you, it's actually the word uh, charis. And it's the idea of unbestowed or unaccepted favor. Like God gives you something you don't deserve, undeserved favor. God gives you something that you don't deserve. You didn't buy it, you couldn't afford it. Uh, but God gives you this gift, this grace. That's basically what the word Means And in today's culture, there are movements that have basically been founded upon this particular word. For example, like the charismatic movement actually kind of has its root name in this particular word because the emphasis, as you imagine, is upon gifts. It's upon these charismata, these charismatic gifts that God gives. And what you oftentimes find, not always, but in some cases, find that there is a tendency to focus on supernatural type things and oftentimes overlook some of the less supernatural type things. But the reality is, is the word charismata is the, also the word gift. So should we call these things the, uh, the spirituals, spiritual gifts or gifts? The fifth one is diakonia. And this is oftentimes translated as service. We get the actual word deacon from this word. It's the idea of something that contributes towards serving. Verse 5, let's read it, says this. Uh, and there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. Um, number six, or verse six, I should say, number, uh, the fourth one is uh, energemata. Uh, this is what Paul says here in verse six. He says, and there are varieties of activities, but the same Lord who empowers them in all everywhere. So the idea here is that this is energy, energy from God, spiritual energy. It's kind of a f- strange phrase. Like uh, you probably wouldn't hear too many Christians talking about the Holy Spirit as energy. That gets a little bit weird and freakish and kind of impersonal. And so oftentimes we steer away from phrases like that. Um, But the reality is this is the word that's actually used here. So whatever it is, whatever these are that Paul is saying has been given to all the church, they're energies, they're spiritual energy for a purpose. Um, Quick little word on this, because one of the things that oftentimes we say is that we lack as human beings energy to love our neighbor or to love our enemy or to forgive someone that's offended us. But the reality is, as a Christian, a Christian is one that basically says, I live my narrative, I live my life according to the narrative of God. In other words, God gives me what I need. Whereas uh, the natural man, or the person that lives according to natural tendencies, natural ideas, natural desires, natural power, oftentimes is running into this brick wall that says, I have no energy, I have no strength, to love my neighbor. I have no strength to get back to God's people, to get back to the church. I have no abilities, no strength or energy or power to forgive. But a Christian is one that basically says, yeah, I, I don't have any of that innately within me, but I know that externally from me, there is this eternal amount available that God gives. This is the spiritual energy that God gives his people The bridge between the two is faith. The one says, I'm looking at, focused on my failures, my deficiencies, what I lack, and therefore I can't, is what we conclude. 
The opposite says, I trust God. I know I have nothing to offer, but God has everything to offer. I trust Him. One constantly finds your life flailing in bitterness and anger and rage and a slave to other desires. The other begins to find victory and find forgiveness and find strength to love those that are unlovely. And they begin to discover their lives begin to be shaped by and look like Christ. This is really the idea. Uh, the fifth one, finally, in verse 7, he uses probably one of my favorite words is phanerosis. And this is just simply the phrase that's actually translated in my ESV as manifestation of the Holy Spirit. So when you think of it this way, whenever God, within a context, brings about a healing. So let's say, for example, you pray for somebody and they are healed of cancer or healed of some sort of ailment or to even take it less supernatural, and you come to church, and the person preaching or speaking shares something with you. It may not even be that great, but in your heart, you hear that, and it sets you free. It delivers you. It's like truth has come into your heart, been applied to your life. You believed it, and it simply it was like the sh- shining light that shone into your darkness and set you free. Those scenarios like that are manifestations of God's holy presence over your life. Those are things to really rejoice in, to think about. In other words, God's not out there, and we've got to go try to track him down and figure out where he's at, but rather God has come near. This is what what Paul's saying, that this is always available to those that follow Jesus. This is always available to those who are in Christ, that God has this ability to bring about life in exchange for death, to bring about order in exchange for chaos, God does this, and this is how God does this, is through this means called the Holy Spirit. And this is why I like the idea of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to what it says in verse 7. Just read it, and you guys can listen to it. He says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now again, like I said, the idea behind God making his presence manifest or known or sensed or realized is not to give you goosebumps, it's not to make you feel awesome inside, though those may be byproducts. Don't misunderstand me. It's ultimately for the common good, the good for the common, the rest, the community. It's for the good of the community. That when we open our hearts up to God and we become these vessels, these vehicles through which, by which God can then bring good into this world, we are operating, moving within the realm of this manifestation of God's spirit. So, what should we call it? It doesn't really matter. You can call it the spiritual gifts, the gifts. You can call it the service of God. You can call it the manifestation of the Spirit. These are all, I think, various ways by which he describes it. Gifts basically equals the Holy Spirit's manifestation or manifest presence. The idea of spiritual gifts equals God's presence to come into this particular realm. We want that. Amen? You guys want that? You guys want God's presence or do you just want a lecture every Sunday? I think we come on Sundays not to just simply get a lecture, all right? Not to be yelled at for 45 minutes. Not to just sing a couple songs. We come because really at the end of the day, we're hungry for God. We want truth to be spoken to us because truth should take the place of lies that we believe. We want healing because God wants to bring reorder in those areas that are broken. I'm not just talking physical healing, though it may involve that, but it could also mean emotional healing, healings that come from or wounds that have come in our lives from 
past experiences, past circumstances, past abuses from our father, from a past boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse or somebody that God wants to bring healing into those broken areas. Because reality is all of these things that we just read are things that we see Jesus actively doing all the time. Setting captives free, speaking words of prophecy, speaking words of knowledge, all for the aim of setting people free. All for the aim of bringing God near to them so that they would find deliverance in life. This is what we come to do. So, with that being said, um, I want to jump in and just begin to take a look at some of these things that we begin to look at. So, one of the things that I want to move on to next is like really how the Holy Spirit manifests. So, there's three different ways I think Paul addresses. We'll go through each of these really quickly. One, we see that Paul, uh, the Holy Spirit actually manifests through community. We've kind of already touched on this a little bit. That's through the church, really ultimately and beyond. Uh, in other words, the idea between or behind the Holy Spirit coming is not to just give us warm great feelings, but it's really within the context of community. What you'll find in the New Testament, there are a lot of passages or books, I should say, that were written to communities, but might have individual implication. They might uh, be implied by or have a benefit for an individual. So in other words, you can be reading the book of Corinthians and be really blessed by, say, for example, the passage that talks about love. Love is patient. Love is kind. You're like, oh, love is awesome. But really what Paul is describing, he's saying that to the context of a community. So they would have been reading this letter in, a, in a, like a context of something like this. And what Paul, they would have been hearing Paul saying, guys, love each other. So in other words, stop being divided. Stop being a group of people that are arguing and constantly critical of one another, be a community of people that love one another. This is, again, love is not saying just, you know, muster up warm, fuzzy feelings towards your neighbor that you're constantly aggravated by, but it's the idea of learn how to give yourself in service, in action, in word, in deed to somebody else. That's, that's really what Paul is saying, is that love is patient, love is kind, so on and so forth. So first of all, we see that it is through community. Secondly, it's for unity. Another word that I threw out for kind of parallels the word unity is the word uh, healing. Uh, another way to think about this within the context of Hebraism is the idea of shalom, peace. That God's aim in bringing unity, there's something bigger than unity. The idea of unity is not just simply people coming together and just kind of gritting their teeth and forcibly brought together in this union, kind of like America and Iran, or Palestinians and Jews living together sort of in this, we're forced together, we're going to make the best do with what we can, but a unity that basically says, I love you, committed to you. Nothing's going to break us apart. This is what God's up to. It's one of the reasons why Paul oftentimes juxtaposes two exacting uh, uh, contradictory phrases like Jew and Gentile to come together, bond or a slave person and a free person. In other words, these would have been two opposite ideas or opposite spectrums come together or male and female uh, very much so competing back in that day but, uh, or in a lot of ways oppressive and uh, oppressor back in that day or oppressed and oppressive in that day. And Paul's saying they're come together in Christ. Here's a couple passages to consider. Turn real quick to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Ephesians 1, verse 10. It's forward in your Bible, so go forward to your right. Ephesians 1, verse 10 says this. When Paul summarizes what God is up to, if you've ever kind of wondered, like, what is God doing in this world? What's his real ultimate aim? What's God really doing in this world? Paul summarizes this in verse 10. He says, 
I'll pick it up at verse 9. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. In other words, an ultimate way to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven, things on earth. That God is up to renewing, bringing forth life where there was once death, bringing forth unity where there was nothing but division and destruction. This is what God is doing. Uh, one of the best ways, most, most graphic ways of describing it is kind of summarized in Jesus' prayer when he says to his disciples, when you pray, pray, uh, our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Uh, he says, let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, this realm, as it is in heaven. Why would Jesus tell us to pray that? Because what God's up to in this world is nothing short of reuniting Heaven, which, or I should say earth, which is our sphere, our world, our realm, which has been completely run amok from the purposes of heaven. So what God is doing is he's reuniting. His aim is to reunite earth and its brokenness and its sinfulness and its rebellion and its defilement back towards heaven. Best thing to kind of think about in this context is to ask a question. Right now, in the world in which we live in, is earth in any way, shape, or form in unison or in agreement with the things of God, or to put it another way, in the things of heaven. Absolutely not. That's what we're constantly fighting over and bickering over in our community, in our world, in our nation. Like trying to figure out what rule should govern us? What should be the norms of a culture, of a society? Well, what the Bible basically teaches is that one of these days, the norms that will one day govern society is God's norms. Right now, we do not live in that day. It hasn't happened yet. But we've begun to see traces of that. We've seen a trailer of that begun to play. And the place in the where in the area in which we've seen that begun to play out is this thing called the church. It's the people on this planet full of brokenness that cry out, God, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth here now in our lives as it is in heaven. God, let your will govern me. Let your will govern our church. Let your norms become the norms of our practices. So God, where there is nothing but unforgiveness, let forgiveness come in that area. God, where there is nothing but hatred and segregation and anger, God, let there be nothing but forgiveness and peace and love take its place. So right now, we live in a world that is in total disagreement with the kingdom of God. But one of these days... That's, that rift, that division will be healed. God will bring about its healing. Those that are in agreement with that prayer and say, yes, Lord, let your will be done, will be swept up in that kingdom. Those that say no, the book of Revelation says, they will find any place where they can to try to escape the kingdom of God. Jesus describes it as a day of judgment. The fact of the matter is, is what we see is that what the Holy Spirit is bringing about is unity. One other final passage, take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He says this, Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy to the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So what, really what Paul is saying is that, guys, you who are and have been saved, rescued by God, and have been taken over by the kingdom, the life, the rules, the, the ordinances of God, 
Just live your life according to that. Why is Paul reminding us? Because we always forget. We always slip into these statuses of forgetfulness. And what Paul is saying is that be reminded of the fact of who you are, of what you've been saved from, and what you've been saved for, and live according to that. Walk according to that. And then Paul kind of summarizes that little section right here by saying, uh, verse 4, he says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, into one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ. Paul is really saying is that this idea of what God's up to is he's bringing about unity. This is not a cheap unity. This is not a unity where two opposing sides are laid on their arms and are forced into this agreement. This is a unity that came at great cost to God. This is what Jesus died for. Jesus literally encountered and experienced separation from God. He was broken so that we who are broken can actually be made whole. This is really a profoundly costly act on God's behalf to bring about a unity. It's not cheap, but it is nonetheless the aim of God and the aim of the Holy Spirit to bring about this unity. It's one of the reasons why back in to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, why Paul is constantly saying phrases like, for example, verse 8 says, the one is given through the Holy Spirit utterance of wisdom to another the utterance And he goes on to keep saying, through the same spirit. The idea is the spirit of God, the same spirit, the one God. That concept that he's trying to convey over and over again. There is not multiple spirits at work. There are not multiple factions within the church. There should never be multiple divisions within the church. There is one church, one spirit, one work that God is doing. What Paul is really advocating for, saying, is put down your petty differences and come together because this is what God's doing. And then the final thing is we see that the Spirit also manifests through diversity. And what we see here is the diversity of giftings. It's one of the reasons why Paul is saying is, is that this is really the opposite of uniformity. That God is not trying to create some sort of a uniform community of people. Whereby we do all things in all the same way. We wear matching t-shirts. We do all these things by we... By, by way of looking the exact same, that's not the point that Paul is saying. In fact, that is not God's aim at all. God's aim is to have great diversity, yet at the same time, unity. And one of the ways in which God accomplishes that is by giving these gifts, back to in the beginning, to be given to the church for the purpose of building up this community. So with that, let's begin to jump in and take a look at what some of these manifestations are or the embodiments of how God begins to work. So before I jump into this, we'll take a look at, and, and again, this is kind of one of the areas of where I've been continuing to study and to think, and um, I, 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 I wish I could say I've completely landed um, squarely on a theological you know, uh, conviction, but sometimes, to be really honest with you, my convictions on this have changed from time to time based upon what I read and how I study it. So let me just simply say this. What I'm referring to is that there are different lists of gifts throughout the New Testament. If you've ever studied this, you know that there's at least 
three primary lists in the New Testament of gifts. Uh, take a look at Romans chapter 12, or you can write this down if you would. There's a list of seven gifts. You don't need to turn there if you want. Just listen to what the gifts are. There's prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leadership, and mercy. The difference is, is that that list that Paul points out there in Romans, he never once uses that word pneumaticos. He does describe them as gifts, charismata. The, the, the fact that the word pneumaticos is not there, to me, would lead me to believe that the gifts that he's referring to in Romans 12 are actually a little bit different than the gifts that he refers to in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, the other thing that I think he's talking about is another list in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul talks about uh, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And some would say that those are gifts. I think probably more likely, again, the word uh, that, that, was, that ties into a, a 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is also absent from that list. I think probably what Paul is referring to in that Ephesians passage is, has to do more so with offices within a church. In other words, various roles, various people, it could be either male or female in a sense, that have a role within a church, and their role within that church is to equip the saints so that as the saints, Christians, do the work of the ministry. That's, that seems to be the aim. So in other words, it's less of a focus upon this pneumaticos in Ephesians and pneumaticos within Romans, So, which leads me to believe or leads me to at least assume, again, uh, like anything, always take what I say, take it back to the word of God. If I'm wrong, then, you know, Judge it, test it, whatever. Again, I would say that this whole teaching right here is kind of more so along the lines of secondary essential things. So again, I would say that there's a big, broad spectrum whereby we could approach these things and be completely orthodox in our understanding of as to who God is. So this is what I would say. I think what Paul is describing in Rome or in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a list of gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church specifically when he wills, as he chooses, for the purpose to anybody in the Christian community, for the purpose of building up the saints, so that they would be edified and encouraged and strengthened, not so that we can somehow build ourselves up, not so how, somehow so that we can create an elite class of Christians like super Christians over here and the rest of everybody else over here, but the idea is so that as these gifts, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are put into play, the gathering of people walk away being built up, strengthened, changed, transformed by God. They walk away with this bigger sense of God and this greater awareness that their problems, their sin, their guilt, their shame is by comparison to this God really minute and small. And that's what I think what Paul is describing here. So these gifts are distinct from just simply what, as Nick so well described last week, um, just gifts that God gives. And I would say, you know, we have a tendency within our own modern vernacular, we say, well, they're really, really gifted. And so just because someone's gifted in something doesn't necessarily mean it is a, in this context, a spiritual gift. I would say that God has given all of us in this room a variety of gifts. I mean, there are things that some of you are way better at than myself. All right? But all of those gifts are really a gift from God. God has given you talents and abilities and uniquenesses and that's one of the things that makes you know, your life unique and awesome and a blessing to other people, if you allow it. Now, you can use that gift as nothing more than a means to build yourself up, to make you look awesome at the exclusion or at the destruction of other people. And I would say that is taking something good and squandering it. When it could be used for blessing, it actually has begun to be used for brokenness and destruction. But you can take that gifting 
and then put it in the context of the church or in the context of serving or blessing other people, then that gift becomes this great source of blessing for other people. So, for example, you might be a baker, all right? You like to cook, and you're really good at it. Uh, that's not necessarily a spiritual gift per se, but you can use that gift to bake pies, let's just say hypothetically, for the pastor and really bless them. And at the same time, that would be a source of great joy. And the fact of the matter is that's not necessarily a spiritual gift that Paul is describing. It can be, it's a gift that's used by the Spirit to bring blessing. In other words, it's different than what he's describing in 1 Corinthians. Or music. You might have a gift in music, and you can use that music in, in a way to bring great blessing to other people. The point of the matter is, I think there's a distinction between natural giftings that can be either used for good, like what Nick pointed out last week, either leverage for good or leverage for evil. But I think what Paul is describing here, back in 1 Corinthians, is a unique list of gifts specifically for the purpose of bringing blessing that come at any given time when God chooses it's, it's, it's incumbent upon us to simply ask God. It's incumbent upon us not to say things like, hey, let's go out and just simply make this happen. It's not let's go out and do this and make it happen. Rather, it's really about us saying, let's open our hearts right now to the Holy Spirit and let God do what God wants to do. That's, that's vastly different than just simply going out and making something happen. It rather involves us pausing and saying, God, we want you to do something great. Would you work through me? God, use my lips, use my mouth, use my life, use what I have for the purpose of bringing blessing to others. Now, with that, I want to jump in, and we'll make this kind of quick, actually, because we won't be able to look at all of these, but I want to at least touch in uh, on a couple of them. First of all, um, we'll take a look at the idea of message of wisdom. So in this particular passage, I'll read through these real fast, the nine gifts that uh, we're not going to look at today. We'll look at a couple of them. Uh, the nine gifts that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12 are these. Word of wisdom, message of knowledge, faith, healing, working of miracles, prophecy, discernment of spirits, speaking in unknown tongues, uh, interpreting unknown tongues. These seem to be the main gifts that he's talking about. Now, uh, one of my favorite uh, commentators, a guy by the name of Gordon Fee, basically describes this, that Paul's main letter, now typically when we read Romans chapter 12, we read it as sort of an instructional manual as to how to use gifts of the Holy Spirit. When Paul, when he originally wrote this, he was not necessarily writing according to Gordon Fee's insight. He was not necessarily writing this as a means of instructional manual. He was actually writing this as a corrective. He's basically saying, you guys are totally... Uh, in a state of disunity. Stop being in a state of disunity. Don't you know that God is one? Don't you know that God gives gifts for the purpose of bringing you together, not causing division, separating you? That's when Paul begins to go on this list of nine things. Now, that being said, there may be a few others that are part of this spiritual gifting. I would think a couple of them off the top of my head. One would be prayer. Prayer is this unbelievable spiritual gift that those, there are some that really pray. When they pray, God listens to them. You know, there are certain people we go to, like a grandma. They're like, would you pray for me? Why do we go to them instead of, you know, a brand new Christian or someone like that? Because in our minds, we have this tendency to realize that they might have a very unique gift where when they say they're going to pray for you, they're not going to just simply write your name and then forget about it. Like a week later, like, hey, did you pray for me? They're like, oh, you know what? I forgot. They're like, I've been praying for you every single day, like constantly, nonstop. You've been on my mind, and there's been passages and scriptures that I feel like I want to share with you. That's perhaps, I think, a, a gift. But the point that I want to make is this. 
Um, John Wimber, he was a, a leader of the Vineyard Movement uh, in the late 80s, or early 80s, all the way throughout the 90s and 2000s and whatnot. Uh, he led this really amazing movement. He kind of described spiritual gifts like this. He called them uh, gracelets, kind of the idea, like to kind of translate that word, uh, giftings, as gracelets. The idea that God gives these like little bracelet, gracelets upon you for the right moment in the right time to do something uh, profound for God's kingdom, for God's glory, for the blessing of others. But he also kind of categorized these in three unique ways. I think is really kind of an interesting way to think about this. One, he describes that really what this is all about is these gifts, these nine gifts that he describes. Uh, they reveal the mind of God. In other words, wisdom and knowledge. We'll take a look at those. It reveals the mind of God. The second thing, it reveals the mouth of God. In other words, when the gift of prophecy are speaking forth, these are God speaking forth. And then finally, the idea of the hands of God. So the working of miracles, praying for the sick and seeing them healed. This is God actually, God's hands touching somebody, praying for them and watching them rise, watching them made whole, the mouth, the mind and hands of God at work. I like that perspective. So first of all, the word of wisdom or the message of wisdom. I'm going to go through these kind of quick. And this is the idea that really it's a message or a word that comes from the Holy Spirit through you to somebody else. It could look like this. That when God maybe gives you this word of wisdom, a thought comes in your mind about somebody else or for somebody else. And in your mind, you might be like, pass it off and just think it's just kind of nonsense. But it's possible that that actually might be from God for somebody else. But the problem is oftentimes we operate under the assumption of fear. We're afraid of stepping out and doing something because we're really deeply afraid of looking foolish, right? So we're afraid. So if something comes to my mind about somebody else in our heart of hearts, we're thinking, should I go tell them? Then we kind of stop because we're like, oh man, what if it's not really right? Or what if I'm wrong? What if my words are false? They're going to think I'm crazy or I'm creepy. But what if it is right? What if it is from God? What if it is something that God wants to speak through you to them for their healing, for their wholeness? I'll give you an example. Several months ago, uh, my wife, Sherry, was struggling with really intense back pain, really bad back pain, to the point where she couldn't move her neck. It was really stiff. She had this, like, it was really bad. So we ended up taking her to the doctor. We actually had an MRI done because the doctor was like, maybe you got a brain tumor. Like, that stinks. Um, okay. Um, so we went through this whole process of trying to figure out what was going on with my wife. And uh, doctor found no brain tumor, which is awesome. Um, and then he says, I'm going to send you to a physical therapist. She went to a physical therapist. It wasn't really helping. It wasn't really doing anything. So we went to some of our friends that live down south a little bit. And we asked them, hey, would you just mind praying for us? And if God gives you any words to speak over us, just please you know, speak. We're here. We, we just want to wait on God and let God do what God wants to do. So we went. And as they were praying over us, and this lady really has a gift of praying. And she's just an amazing woman of God, and her husband is just an amazing man of God, and as they were praying over my wife, she stopped, and then she basically said something to, to my wife. She says, hey, there's a, there's a picture that comes to my mind about such and such and such, and she, I won't go into the details of it, and says, does any of this kind of resonate with you? And my wife was like, yeah, it's exactly, and then she basically began to speak a word of prophecy, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, actually, uh, to, went along with that word of wisdom, and literally, after months of my wife having excruciating neck pain, thinking she had a brain tumor and all these other horrible scenarios uh, that we were literally dealing with, in an instant, from that word of wisdom, following or followed by that word of prophecy, uh, my wife was like literally healed instantaneously. Her back pain literally went away. 
we were driving home, and not only that, but her heart was completely elevated. It was just put back upright. Like, we were literally driving home, and I'm like, how do you feel? She's like, I feel amazing. I, I, like, my heart's not burdened anymore. I feel like I was able to release it and let it go, and I'm done with it. God's, God's put that behind me. And literally to this day, you ask her about it, and she'll tell you, like, I, it's, God delivered me that moment. What was that? Like, what, what caused that? This is a word of wisdom being spoken through a lady that loves Jesus. She's not a superhero. She's not, like, you know, ninja Christian ex-woman. She was just a devoted person who loves God and let her mouth be a mouthpiece for God. Let her brain be able to hear what God was trying to say. She delivered that word to my wife, and it delivered my wife. It was Jesus. It wasn't her. She was just a mouthpiece. It's a word of wisdom. Sometimes God might give you a thought, something that comes from your, to your mind to give to somebody else to help them. And then secondly, and close to this, is word of knowledge. And the idea behind this is that this is revealing some information that maybe no one else would really know. They would, you wouldn't have really any other access to information about this scenario. Um, I'll give you two examples and I'll finish. One is Jesus at the well in Samaria. There's a woman, uh, she's a prostitute. You know, it's believed she comes out and she's dialoguing with Jesus and Jesus begins to have conversation with her about religious type stuff. And then, so what ends up happening is Jesus says, look, why don't you go get your husband and let's, let's talk about this stuff. And she goes, I'm not married. And she's like, well, yeah, you're not married. You've been, you've, you've been married five different times, divorced five different times. And the dude that you're living with right now is not really your husband. Like you're you're living in sexual impurity and sin right now. And, uh, and she goes, oh my gosh, you're a prophet. And then she immediately, at that moment, that word of knowledge that was spoken to her, literally was like this flood of light that shined into her darkness, not to expose her, to shame her, but to bear her shame, to carry it, to do something with it, to put it away from her, This is the point of this. It's not in order to shame somebody or make them feel guilty or feel bad. It's actually to do something with their guilt and their defilement and their brokenness, to bring it to Jesus so that that they can be delivered and set free. Um, Another one is just on a personal note. There's a lot of times I'll be preaching, and someone will come up to me afterwards and be like, bro, how did you know that I was going through that? Because you literally, like, word for word, describe exactly what's going on in my life right now. Did someone tell you? I've actually had people accuse me before. Like, did someone tell you? I'm like, I don't even know. I've never even met you before. I don't, are you stalking me on Facebook? No, I don't do that very often. But the point of the matter is, <laughs> I don't know you. Like, like, how could I know the details of that person's life? And the fact is, I, I don't. I don't know the details but God does, and there's times that I'm just speaking, I'll say something, and it's just these little details are coming out, like word for word, and it's addressing directly, point for point, situations that may be going through in your life. And, and again, the idea is not to shame or maim or destroy or defile or break you, it's, it's not break you apart into, into shattered pieces, but really to take your brokenness and bring it back together again for healing. That's the point, that we have a God that wants to help us wants to heal us. And so he gives us gifts within his community of saints called the church for the purpose of bringing about healing. The final thing I want to finish with is this. I'm going to have the worship team come on up as I close. Is There's basically three different postures as I see that we can basically move forward on. One is the posture of just simply being closed. We hear this type of stuff. 
we're freaked out by it, maybe based on past scenarios in, the, in, the, in, our, in our history where we run from it, the idea of allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to us or be uh, an active member within our church community is a little bit frightening or terrifying. So we're like, no, 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 let's just be close to that. Let's just study the Bible. But the fact of the matter is, is I believe God wants more. My hope for you, if, that, if you are close to it, my hope is that over this series of time, that if anything, what I say would at least sort of nudge you towards at least a curiosity that God may have something more for you. That God may have something far more for you. That God actually wants to take you from the shallows that you seem to be so comfortable in and bring you into the depths. I realize it's sometimes scary or frightening to be in a place that's unknown. But isn't that, isn't that what Christianity is about? I mean, we are following a God we don't see. How unknown is that? Should it not stand to reason that everything in our life also to some degree is going to follow some suit in that order? That there are going to be times that God says, I want you to do this. It doesn't make sense to you. It might even cause you to feel awkward in doing so. But obey me, trust me. I'll carry you. Which leads to one final thing I would say just with regard to when we step out and do this. It's sometimes frightening. It's one of the reasons why I would encourage people, just as a side note, that if God gives you a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge for somebody else, I, just a word of advice, I would say, never accuse, always ask questions. So maybe you've been around people before, they're like, you are sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It's like this accusative tone. You're like, no, I'm not. You know? Or you could say, is something going on in your life? Because for some reason, I just have this inclination on my soul. It feels like it's pressing me. Is something going on here in a situation in your life? Ask questions. Don't accuse. Ask questions. And what you might discover is that God may actually use that to shed light in areas of darkness for the purpose of bringing reorder where there's nothing but chaos. So we can take a posture of closure. We can take a posture of openness. Right? We just say, yeah, I, I get it. I mean, I, there's a lot. I don't get it. I don't really understand. But I'm open. I'm open to how the Holy Spirit wants to move and work in good, redemptive, healing ways. And I would say, for the most part, by and large, that's who we are as a church. We're open. We're open to these things. The third posture, I would say, is really where I would love to see us continue to move more towards. Uh, it's the really idea of actively pursuing whereby we just say, we want to be this church. We want to be this community. Whereby we're regularly asking people that if they're sick or they're going through a dark time, can we pray for you? Can we anoint you with oil? Can we just stop what we're doing and stop talking about the fact that you've had these gnarly migraines? And let's just crack out some oil. Let's lay it on your forehead. And let's get five or six other people around you. And let's just pray that God removes these migraines away. And when we do that, I think we put ourselves in this place whereby God begins to do amazing things. I don't want to just talk about this stuff. I want to be the church. I know most of us, we're in that place. We want to do that. We don't just want to play church. We don't want to just listen to sermons or be yelled at. We want to be doing the stuff the Holy Spirit is doing in this world because that's life-giving. So I want to invite you to respond to God. One of the ways in which we've been encouraging you guys to do this in responding is every Sunday as we close and we finish, we respond by singing, but we also respond by supper. We partake of the Lord's Supper. We have it in the front, have it in the back. It's a way for us to remind ourselves that the reason why that 
we want to be moved into this place of being a healing community of people is because we have a God that's in this community, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There is diversity within this unity. And what we have is this God that is on this rescue mission that comes into this world, into our brokenness, into your brokenness, and he himself bears it all. He himself, the only one who is never broken, the only one who can be described as he is whole, he is shalom embodied. He is broken and bruised, torn apart, and his blood is shed so that we who live this life deserving the brokenness that we encounter, some deserve, some undeserved. Some because of sins that we've committed against others, some because of sins that have been committed against us. But he bears it all. Defilement, shame, the guilt for us. So we respond by partaking in that. But in final, in closing, I want to invite you to respond by giving your heart, your thoughts, your minds to God. For you, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, that looks like you coming to Jesus and just saying, Jesus, please forgive me. Wash me. This isn't someone a few weeks ago, and they were describing, and there's no like, Bible verse to back this, so I don't know how scriptural it is, but the, past, past, the idea that they were basically saying is that there's only really one type of people that are going to be in heaven. It's, it's those people that will say, Jesus, will you heal me? And, and in some way, when you think about it, that, the rest of the world says, no, I don't, I don't want Jesus to heal me. I'll heal myself, get more education, get more money, get a better job, get a better trophy wife, trophy husband, trophy career, something. Somehow, some way, my healing will come once I obtain whatever that other thing is out there. That's placing confidence and hope in something other than the God who heals. My advice to you would be to run to Jesus and ask him for healing. He'll heal you. For those of you, if you're and you're a Christian, you, you love God and you're open to these things, I invite you to just extend yourself out to God. Um, we say this all the time, that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. But the flip side of this is, is how much of, the, of our lives does the Holy Spirit have? In other words, how much have we actually given ourselves over to the Holy Spirit? That's what we're really talking about. We're actually saying, would you be willing to just say, God, take me. Take all that I am. Use my mouth as your mouth. Use my mind if you want to allow me to think thoughts that are in your heart so I can share those with other people. God, do that. Use my hands, Lord, if there's somebody you want me to pray for who's sick, and if in that moment you want to give me the ability to pray for healing and you give that, then I, I just want to be there. I just want to give myself to that. For some of you, in your mind, the thought of even giving yourself like this to God is the last thing on your radar screen because in your mind you are so struggling to keep afloat by the weight of sin and shame and guilt that you carry. So the thought of actually being a blessing to other people is not even on your radar screen. You're like, I just need to somehow figure out I'm going to get past this set wave of destruction and pain upon my life. What I would encourage you to think about, think about the grace, the love of God that is actually more buoyant than your sin and shame and guilt. Let that build you up. Let that pick you up. Let that allow you to float so that through that floating that life, you can then become exactly everything we were talking about from the Holy Spirit to others. So when we all stand, why don't we respond?